Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think to me, to both of us, we like to say that compassion is your birthright. It's all of our birthright. You know, as a human being on this planet, you are worthy of compassion, receiving and giving compassion. And now, as much as any other time in our lifetime, it's a good time to remember that, to remember our capacity for compassion for each other. Practicing being the version of yourself that you wish to be, the embodied, interdependent, interconnected, loving awareness that a human being can be. And when our brains and bodies are embodying that, there's greater neural integration, there's greater psychological flexibility, there is more self-compassion. You're listening to Dr. Laura Silverstein-Turch and Dr. Dennis Turch on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, this is Diana. Today we have an interview with Dr. Laura Silverstein-Turch and Dr. Dennis Turch, who are big promoters of compassion-focused therapy. And I have Jill here. What were your thoughts after listening to that interview? Well, first of all, I thought that the interview was very calming. You know, both Dennis and Laura have a nice calming, calming demeanor, as do you. So that was nice during this particular time that we find ourselves in. But one of the things that really struck me is early on in the episode, Laura's talking about the threat system, the activation of the threat system, and how right now we're just currently bombarded essentially with bad news. And you know, where my brain went to add to that is it's not just the news, it's social media, you know, where we're just like, constantly doom scrolling and being exposed to some pretty tough stuff. I think the threat system gets activated when we look at social media, and there's a discrepancy between this ideal version of self that's out there and then our our real selves. And when we look at that discrepancy, it creates threat in ourselves as well, or a sense of drive that we're not doing enough, or we're not enough. And both of those can activate the opposite of compassion or or self-compassion, that real self-focus that social media has. Yeah, I think it's made us more self-critical and simultaneously more self-focused, because we're constantly thinking, what am I going to post about my life and what's going on with me? And when what we really need for self-compassion and compassion toward others is a recognition of common humanity that we all suffer together. And and it made me think like, gosh, how well are we able to access the compassion? I think she called them capacities, the compassion capacities. It was things like empathy and other elements that I think atrophy, the more we're focused on tech, but also like this is a plat this platform isn't going away 
right? Like we we can't just complain about it. We also can't go cold turkey because it's necessary for a lot of elements of our lives. But maybe this is something we can figure out. Like how do we use technology and these platforms to spread compassion? To, to ourselves and to others. It's interesting because as many of our listeners know, I haven't been on social media and I was really a late adopter to the cell phone as well. But now I'm finally ready to get on just as soon as everyone is ready to jump ship. But one of the things that I've been thinking about in both our homeschooling as well as uh, social media is ecosystems. And ecosystems are made up of producers, consumers, and decomposers. And humans aren't the best at decomposing, but they certainly produce and consume a lot. And when we're thinking about the ecosystem of social media, I'm wondering how we can do a better job at producing content that is beneficial and does not harm and creates a sense of community, compassion, and how can we consume in a way that isn't harmful to ourselves, to our psychology, or to our families, to each other, and I don't know how easy that's going to be. You can let me know. I'll be on mainly Instagram working on giving you some content of how to use ACT in your daily life and some short yoga and visualization and meditation, but we'll see. I think it's a good challenge for us and for our listeners, especially our listeners who have knowledge in the area of compassion. You know, how can we challenge ourselves to produce material content that that spreads compassion. Absolutely. And speaking of material that spreads compassion, Psychologists Off the Clock is partnered with Praxis Continuing Education, and they have a lot of wonderful workshops and offerings that are related to ACT and related to compassion. I was even just looking at the upcoming workshop with Dennis Turch on Tuesday, November 17th, which is Commit and Act, Self-Liberation in Challenging Times, Walking the Path of Mindfulness, Acceptance, and Compassion. And as partners with Praxis, we do offer a discount. If you go through our website and at offtheclockpsych.com, you'll get a $25 off discount for any of their live online and on-demand courses. And there's just a number of wonderful courses there. I know, Jill, you've enjoyed Praxis a lot uh, as a clinician and in your own training. I send everyone I know to Praxis, and I think I might sign up for that at what was it called? Commit and Act on November 17th? With Dennis, I think I might sign up for that training. That sounds amazing. So listeners, come join me. Dr. Laura Silberstein-Turch is the director of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy and serves as an adjunct assistant professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University. Dr. Silverstein-Church is a clinical supervisor and compassion-focused therapy trainer who presents internationally on mindfulness and compassion and is the author of three books, including How to Be Nice to Yourself. She is the founder and past president of the New York City chapter of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and the Compassionate Mind Foundation USA. Her research interests include psychological flexibility and emotions, as well as CFT for anxiety and depression. It's an honor to have you on. Good to see you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. We have with Laura Dennis Turch, her husband and partner, and he is the founder of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy in New York City, past president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, president of the Compassionate Mind Foundation North America, and the associate clinical director of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York City. 
He is an internationally acknowledged expert, psychotherapist, supervisor, and trainer in CFT, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and Buddhist psychology. And Dr. Turch is the author of seven books, numerous chapters, and peer-reviewed articles on mindfulness-based psychotherapies. He regularly trains CFT and ACT globally through workshops and courses in person and online. And his work has been covered in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and NPR, among other media outlets. Through regular Twitter and other social media posts, Dr. Turch shares compassion-focused insights with tens of thousands of people each day. Dr. Turch is an ambassador for the Ram Dass Fellowship and an advocate for yoga, sobriety, and vegetarian vegan living. Dr. Turch is also a Zen Dharma holder, lay teacher of Sharma. Thank you for inviting us and for spending your time uh, and for your interest in having a conversation today. It's a real treat to have you both on. Uh, you're sort of the the mother and father couple of compassion-focused therapy and having you both in one spot at the same time with, I know, a little one napping. It takes a lot to get here. So we're really grateful for your time. Thank you for joining us. And I I guess I just want to start with, with how you're holding up. It's been quite a, a period of time, lots of stressors on the family. I'm sure your uh, work has gotten very busy and there's a lot of need for you as compassion-focused therapy experts and ACT experts. How are you doing as, as a family and how is, how is all of this uh, challenging time impacting the two of you? I, I think we're, you know, we're, we're doing, we're doing well, I think, considering kind of the context and, and we feel really lucky in many ways um, to have this time and to have each other. Um, there's certainly been so many opportunities to practice, practice compassion, practice acceptance, practice kind of the work that we, um, that we preach and that we love and that we live. And it's wonderful to have kind of a fellow psychologist and and fellow traveler as a partner in in this time together. I think that there's been a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of ups and downs over this past year. I mean, 2020 has become a bit of an adjective in this house. When things go wrong, things have gone 2020 in this house. So I think we've kind of used that as kind of a, as a cue for kind of practicing, dropping in, um, taking care of each other, and looking for... Uh, the positives in all this. I don't think we would have had this kind of insular time together with our daughter being so young um, and to have both our hands on in this way. So there are some, some ways we've seen some blessings in all of this madness. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of echo and, you know, support what Laura's saying, we're aware as we all are of how much loss and, and pain and sickness has, has, uh, affected the whole world, like sort of in a unique way in, in, in our lifetime, I think. I've never seen a single stressor have such great impact on the lives of so many people in so many different ways. And if you're a sensitive uh, living soul, you know, you're going to be aware of that. And we've had some people we know who have passed away uh, from this, as so many of you have. And uh, fortunately, our closest folks are safe and well. And fortunately, you know, this struggle kind of is compatible with our, our life uh, style and our life's mission, you know. I mean, so to be able to work from home and to be able to be of service and to be connected to people in need and also to be a family and with our daughter and with older relatives to be safe and healthy and well as much as we've been and also to be kind of like 
you know, uh, homebodies and nerds. It also helps because you get to read or practice music or, you know, do things at home, exercise, being, we live in, in nature, not, you know, too many folks around. So it's just some, sometimes in the course of your life, the, the, when things go sideways, you're particularly vulnerable. I've been there. I know we all have. And, and then sometimes when things go sideways, you have some buffering kind of stuff. So, so we've been lucky, although it is a profound stress, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, for all of us. So it's, it's a reasonable place to begin our chat today. It's interesting because I think the profound stress is impacting us in our little units in our household. People are more irritable, maybe less kind with each other. And often that's the case with those that we love the most, right? And then bigger picture as you zoom out and you look at our country, we're both in the United States and even our our world, uh, there's so much conflict and, and division. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, compassion-focused therapy is so grounded in um, sort of evolutionary understanding of our brains and our minds. Can you talk about why sometimes it's so hard to be kind to each other, and especially when we're stressed and when we need it most? Well, I'll kind of take a short version of, of that, is that that human beings have evolved with this finely tuned sensitive threat detection system for, for real threats in the world and also for social threats. So when there's something that is a potential threat, including the threat of rejection or not being good enough, our attention narrows and our behavioral repertoires focus on that threat. So we're going to tend to kind of gravitate to have that kind of threat-based bias in the way we think. And and sometimes it's really hard to soften, even though compassion and self-compassion can downregulate. It's designed to downregulate our experience of threat. Anything that could kind of come near vulnerability, sometimes our learning histories have set us up to. That's sort of like one door opener to that you know what i mean Laura? Mm-hmm. there's more to it no i think that makes a lot of sense and i think there is this kind of capacity that we have for kind of protecting ourselves in the face of threat and given the way our minds and our brains have evolved that we can hold on to that threat for long periods of time it's not like we just let it go and move on we have this ability to kind of hold on to and ruminate about the past and worry about the future, which keeps that threat system going and really is kind of can be resistant to that softening that Dennis speak, speaks to, particularly when it feels like it's unrelenting that every day we're waking up to another perceived threat or another thing to worry about or to ruminate about. And so I think in that, in that respect, it kind of is this, always on better safe than sorry 24 7 um threat detection machine which is almost mirrored by this always on 24 7 news cycle that we've kind of mm. been living in and so i think there isn't a lot of breaks in the context of that you know we, we talk a lot about this idea of our generation receives and is kind of witness to more images of threat and aggression and violence than ans- than generations of our ancestors ever witnessed. So I think that there is this kind of um, kind of always on unrelenting aspect to the stress that we're under that really makes it hard, right? And it kind of is almost like stopping a speedboat to slow down, drop in, and get connected to be sensitive to suffering, to feel connected and f- affiliated to those around us and to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And 
What about when that aggression is directed towards ourselves? Because I think the the flow of the the news media and uh, access to all these images not only exacerbates divide and a sense of threat uh, amongst others, but it can exacerbate that feeling within ourselves that we're not enough. And I know that Laura, your book, How to Be Nice to Yourself, I I have I just leave it out on my 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 desktop. I put it around the house. My kids leave through it. It's because it's it's sort of what we crave a little bit, right? Of how to be nicer to ourselves. So what happens when the the aggression is towards the self? Why is our mind doing that? There's kind of a control and self-protection strategy in our capacity for self-criticism, self-attacking, albeit it's got its job wrong, right? It's ineffective because it leaves us feeling more anxious, more hopeless, less motivated, to do something about it when we are beating up on ourselves, when we are engaged in shame-based self-criticism. But the the intention there, and, and kind of when we look at, and we do like a functional analysis of self-criticism, when we ask kind of people that we work with or trainees, like what would be your greatest fear if we were to take away that inner critic? I could take away that capacity to attack yourself. Like what would be the fear there? And there's often a pause right? Because we recognize that it's harmful, but there's also this, wait a minute, like this kind of pause of like, wait, if you took that away, maybe I might be even worse. Maybe I wouldn't live up to my values. Maybe I would, would engage in bad behavior on some level. So I think there is a part of us that, that thinks that if we're kind of hard on ourselves, if we beat ourselves up, but we blame ourselves enough, that somehow we'll, we'll, we'll prevent ourselves from engaging in bad behavior or from doing things that we might regret. But what we know from the research and what we know from our own experiences that it's got its job wrong, that it's not effective. It's not skillful in, in that way. And ultimately leaves us feeling worse than, than it would if we were to take a step back and be the kind of friend or mentor or coach or companion that wants the best for us. One of the things that you teach in compassion focused therapy is beginning to personify and look at the inner critic. And I first met the two of you back at the first annual Compassionate Mind Retreat in Nyack. And I have these nostalgic memories of eating together, being in line together, being all packed into a small space and how beautiful that time was. But one of the things that really struck me from one of the talks that Paul Gilbert gave was when he asked this group of therapists, researchers, people interested in compassion to describe what their inner critic looks like. It was pretty darn harsh, pretty, you know, images of like, it's the devil with horns. It's an evil, you know, hag beating at me. Uh, So all of us have this inner critic. It's pretty, it's pretty harsh. And what, why is it helpful to start to personify it in that way? There's a few, you know, positive dimensions to that are like helpful, mm-hmm. you know, dimensions to that kind of work. One is to, you know, be less identified or less stuck or fused in those mental events and emotional experiences. Often we'll say, I beat myself up. I am very self-critical. I hate myself. I think I'm a loser, which is very different from like, I'm having that thought that I am bad. I'm feeling this sinking feeling in my chest that I get when I start to beat myself up, feel heavy or sad about uh, 
about the things I've done or my mind is telling me there's something wrong with me. That's a different thing, right? So there's like a different, it's like the difference of looking at the world through your glasses or taking your glasses off and seeing your glasses. So part of what we do in that exercise is we begin by asking people if their inner critic was removed. And I'm sure you, you, you remember this part of the exercise and Laura's done this one a whole bunch. We, we do it all the time with our clients and probably with ourselves, you know, like if there was a magic way waving a magic wand or some kind of super app that could zap my brain and there goes my inner critic. It's not there anymore. You know, that inner critical capacity is gone. What would I be afraid would happen? And at first people think, what do you mean? What would be afraid? Like, that's a great thing to have happen. I wouldn't want to beat myself up anymore. But then you kind of slow down and think, well, if it was really gone, like you really couldn't beat yourself up at all, what would it be like? And people usually say, oh, I'd become lazy or I'd become, uh, you know, less effective or I'd be a bad person or people wouldn't like me or all this kind of stuff. And there's all these reasons, all these things that the inner critic is sort of like protecting us from. So it develops with a function. We have fears of rejection. You know, a human being is a type of a primate and a lone monkey is a dead monkey. We don't want to be voted off the island. We don't do very well out on our own. So our mind is protecting us from exclusion. It's protecting us from rejection. And we think that we need this critical part of us. But if you do the next part of that exercise where it's like, okay, well, that's what I'd be afraid might happen. But what do I really see when I imagine this inner critic? And just like you were saying, it's this terrifying image. Does that inner critic have its my best interest at heart? Not really. What does it feel like when I'm full of shame and dread? Does that lead to positive, healthy change? No. Sometimes I'll say to clients, like, if that worked, I'd have the easiest job. It wouldn't be a very pleasant job. And people would come in and I'd just be mean to them and tell them how terrible they are and tell them they had to go out and be better people. And then they'd come back next week and they'd say, oh, thank you very much. You know, I really... That, all that verbal abuse really got me to like, you know, organize my garage and get a better job and I'm a better partner now. So thanks for being mean to me. That's not what therapy is. That's not what teaching is. That's not what how people change. That's not what lifts us up. You know what I mean? So that's part of that whole part of the whole practice. So it's very much you're also talking about the act process of diffusion, stepping back, looking at something when you talk about the glasses and taking them off your face. I think it might be helpful for our listeners to Get a, get a sense, like a window into what you're doing with people when you're working with these processes, what it looks like, and what kind of transformations happen as a result. I think that when, we, when we're working on kind of compassion-focused um, therapy, it helps to start with what we mean by compassion. I think compassion has gotten a bad rap over the years and over its lifetime as something that's to be seen as soft um, or forgiveness, and there's a lot of confusion around that. So early on, kind of unpacking that with our clients in terms of what are the capacities, what are the qualities that make up the compassionate mind that allow us to be sensitive to suffering in ourselves and others, and to engage in a deep commitment to prevent and alleviate suffering in ourselves and others. And I think that that definition um, is where kind of these processes kind of eat emerge, right? Like this sensitivity to suffering, this present moment sensitivity to what's going on in oneself and others. Can you notice suffering as it arises in your body, in your mind? And when you do, you know, are you deeply committed 
to your well-being? Is there a motivation there to care for that well-being? We know that compassion and our capacity for compassion evolved from, for, from our capacity for caretaking and care-receiving, right? That we are kind of animals, we are beings that need each other for our survivals. And so this kind of care for well-being, this motivation to take care of ourselves and each other is another process of the compassionate mind. And then we kind of look at kind of with our clients, with our trainees, kind of how, how, um, how willing and able we are to engage in those qualities. There's this capacity for sympathy, our, our ability to be moved by the suffering of others, and empathy, our capacity to put ourselves in another's shoes and see things from their perspective or in kind of the imagery work around our compassionate, our compassionate selves or around our inner critic, um, like the imagery of the devil. Can we understand where that critic is coming from and what its true intentions are, that kind of capacity for flexible perspective taking that is involved? And can we tolerate, are we willing to be with the distress of that suffering that we're being sensitive to? And finally, can we unhook ourselves from our judgmental, evaluative thoughts about our experience of the experience of others in order to really tune into and do something about one's suffering. So those are like the qualities, the processes or um, capacities for compassion that we look to train up from top down and the bottom up in our clients and in our trainees. Those are the kind of what we call, those are what we call the competencies of the compassionate mind. Um, And then we train in kind of the behaviors. What do you do, right? Once you have this capacity for sensitivity, empathy, sympathy, stress tolerance, non-judgment, what do you do in the face of suffering when it shows up for yourself or for others? Mm. I think part of what we're discussing is an embodied mode of being or like an embodied motive Mm. and and we were talking last year with Kristen Neff about this and the difference between describing compassion as an embodied motive or just kind of noticing self-compassion in these three parts that she identifies Uh, and Chris Germer works with obviously who works with her in the mindful self-compassion in the MSC world there's this very straightforward way of saying, hey, if you're going to be self-compassionate to, you know, you're, one of the things you're doing is you're, you know, mindful of the present moment. You're aware of what's happening around you. You're recognizing your common humanity. And you're also practicing, you know, kindness towards yourself as opposed to cruelty to yourself, which is you know, a pretty good place to begin. That's, that's quite a lot right there. And all the beautiful practices that can bring those things forward. That's really great. So Kristen was sort of saying, like, you know, you got to be able to say this in ways that people relate. You know, like, what an embodied motive. Why, why even use that language? And she had a good point. But one of the things I like about the kind of detail of the CFT and act, like, but sticking with the CFT process model and the way Laura's mapping it out, right, is that we might not talk that way with every client, but we will sort of know that we have this aim in mind and the aim is not to get people to think differently then the aim is not for people to like you know fake it till they make it the aim is not to you know although, although, although it's great you know thinking differently is great faking it till you make it's great being mindful is great those are all 
great things. But awakening some capacity that you have, awakening a dimension of your being that functions differently, that a whole human sentient being acts in the world differently when they're embodying their awakening compassionate mind. That's, that's worth noticing. That's worth talking about in those terms. Practicing being the version of yourself that you wish to be, the embodied, interdependent, interconnected, loving awareness that a human being can be. And when our brains and bodies are embodying that, there's greater neural integration, there's greater psychological flexibility, there is more self-compassion. If you're interested in building more compassion into your daily life, join me, Diana, for a workshop through Yoga Soup called Act Daily with Compassion. It's online Sunday, December 13th from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Pacific Time. It's by donation, so everybody is welcome, and all donations go to Yoga Soup. You can learn more at drdianahill.com. There you'll also find a free download to help you work with your inner critic in developing a more compassionate voice. Check it out at drdianahill.com. So many uh, people across the globe, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, are going to be entering into a uh, deep, long winter. And I think that there is a lot of concern about what that's going to look like and feel like and how people are going to navigate that. How would that, how would you use some of those competencies to approach something like the, the realities of future stressors and even current stressors that people are experiencing? So I think with, with our clients, you know, this is a season um, where it is getting darker in the Northern Hemisphere. The days are getting shorter. We're heading into a third, uh, you know, wave of the pandemic. There are different kind of quarantine requirements in different countries. It's scary. You know, politically, things are scary in many countries. A third of the developed world now is facing, you know, populist like uh, momentum, you know, moving towards greater potential autocracy. We're talking today in this sort of day that's very exciting for a lot of people who value empathy and compassion. And we were talking about this a little earlier that, you know, the, the uh, election is just, you know, hopefully been called or has been called and hopefully it doesn't result in all sorts of new levels of ridiculousness in the States this very day. So yeah, there, there are, there are, there are moments of brightness and there's moments of hope and there's reason to, to have like a, like a optimistic, uh, you know, frame. And yet we're facing really difficult, like stressors and it happens every year. You know, it's like cycles, samsara, cyclic, cyclic difficulty. So what we're working with clients is like, and with ourselves is to access that part of ourselves, slowing down, engaging parasympathetic nervous system, breathing, all of these kind of grounding practices, stabilizing practices and uh, stimulating that embodied motivational system, which you can do lots of different ways with clients. I think there is a, yeah, a variety of ways of, of kind of accessing uh, compassion for yourself in the context of particularly, I think this w- upcoming winter um, and this difficulty and being able to see the big picture, right? The opportunities for hope mm-hmm. and for lightness and joy 
as they arise, but also to be able to tune in and take care of ourselves in the context of our suffering. And I think that begins with a pure acknowledgement. This is, this is new. This is difficult. We haven't been here before. I mean, granted, we have a little bit of practice because this is our, our third wave when it comes to uh, lockdown and, and the pandemic. But in the context of, of this winter and it lasting this long and all the different uh, costs that have come with, with this experience, I think that having a deep acknowledgement and validation of our suffering and of our pain, of course, we're struggling of course, there's difficulty right now. It makes sense that we're not sleeping or we're a little more irritable with our loved ones or that we're having a harder time concentrating on the 85,000 Zoom meeting that we're on or whatever it is in that moment to hold ourselves in this kind of deep understanding and wisdom, right? That this is new. We didn't choose any of this. This is not what we want for ourselves or for our loved ones. And then kind of really tuning into kind of what it is that we need most in these moments, what is available to us. And I think this is where we pull from the act processes so much is our individual values. How do we embody our values in this context, in this way? What is available to us in terms of reorienting to being the type of partner or parent or caregiver or pet owner, or, um, you know, or self that we want to be in the context of this new kind of suffering? And, and how do we kind of take care of ourselves on that road? So I think there is kind of using our capacity for the sensitivity of noticing, but also I think a strong kind of acknowledgement, acceptance, and, and validation of what's going on for each of us right now and as we move into this kind of darker winter. It's interesting because I interviewed Dr. Uh, Stefan Forges right at the beginning of the pandemic, right at the beginning of lockdown. And it was sort of this auspicious moment to get to speak with him. And we went through the whole interview where he was talking about somatic practices to activate our vagal tone and all these beautiful teachings. And at the very end, he said, and now I got to go to Costco. <laughs> because it's both, right? It's both... Uh, and as fellow yogis, right, effort and surrender, both the, the deliberate daily practice of doing values-based action, but also just, you know, the, the tasks of, of uh, homemaking and taking care of our homes, taking care of each other, doing the dishes, feeding ourselves, getting enough sleep, as well as the surrender component, which I really appreciate. I think compassion-focused therapy offers, it's like a surrendering into, into what you describe softness, and how to how to surrender in a way that is like a like when they teach a child how to swim the very first thing they when you're when your little baby learns to swim the first thing they teach them is to float on their back in starfish pose because that's actually what will uh, rescue them if if they if they're caught in the middle of the pool float on your back rather than struggle so I'm wondering about how that looks for you in your own lives the the effort the deliberate action the tapas and the and then also the surrendering as parents or as a couple? I think that compassion-focused therapy is yoga. Mm. And we said that in a class on Monday for the first time. And it was really, it felt so right to say it, you know, because the yoga, the asana practice of yoga in its current form, as, as we know, right? Like that's, you know, if it's 112 years old in this form, it's a lot. It probably has drastically changed with the addition of like 
Northern European physical culture exercises and stretches and things that like were brought back to India and adapted with the asanas that existed. And so the yoga that we teach as physical yoga, that we practice as physical yoga, that's kind of a new sort of sleek, off, an awesome and effective thing. But the yoga as yoking, as blending, as harmonizing different uh, dimensions of our functioning, you know, through... Uh, like devotional yoga and bhakti yoga and karma yoga, how we live, how we act, training the mind, training the body, training the breath, and bringing all of those types of functioning, all those competencies into harmony around uh, like gentleness and surrender and loving awareness and connectedness. That's mm-hmm. And that is sort of, you know, compassion-focused therapy. Paul is more partial to the term compassion and kindness, Paul Gilbert, because love in the West, you know, he points, makes a very good point. We're so, we're so into preference and I like, I don't like, and love meaning like, Ooh, I love you. I want to marry you or you're, I love you, bro. Or like, it's about, it's about, uh, you know, a kind of a different kind of attachment, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, as opposed to not loving or not liking, it's very dichotomized. But the kind of like universality of uh, affiliation, of connectedness and harmony, we-ness, you know, collective awareness, that is, uh, is, is what we're yoking to in the 3,000-year-old, at least, practices mm. of yoga, yoga. That's sort of what we're doing with Compassion Books Therapy. We have an ideal of a compassionate mind. We can situate ourselves inside that compassionate mode of being rather than situate ourselves as our everyday ego self. And then we can feed the dog and wash the dog bowl and we can watch what we eat and eat healthily and be careful not to get stuck confused with anger and treat each other badly or treat ourselves with cruelty. And so that, that sort of letting go and surrendering our modes of control and grasping and anger and ego or drive circle and threat circle and CFT language, you know, anger and anxiety, all this stuff, not denying those emotions, but like allowing them to be present and not being super identified with them, not like proceeding where we hand our whole lives over to those experiences. So I think like you really make a beautiful point that like a yogic lifestyle or a compassion focused lifestyle or a healthy lifestyle. It's just, they're all different facets of the same diamond in a way. It's the same kind of way of being in the world. I love how you bring up yoga and the overlap. And it's something that as a yoga teacher, I I think a lot about. And even in thinking about the eight limbs of yoga and the yamas and the niyamas, right? So, so the yamas being the actions that, that we take the ethical principles that we take towards others, things like practicing nonviolence, ahimsa, or practicing um, brahmachahara, so practicing moderation and balance. But then the niyamasa being about how we treat ourselves. And that's very much the flow of compassion, right? Of, of, of not just looking at how can I be more self-compassionate or how can I be more giving to others, but really what are the big picture principles that we bring into our lives and our daily actions, whether it's through yoga or through um, people have different religious, spiritual relationships, or even just thinking about ourselves as animals that are inter- interconnected on this planet that are very much one big macro organism that, that influence each other, that we co-regulate each other. Laura, for you as a, a mom, 
I'm curious about compassion and, and, and motherhood and how that flow of compassion shows up for you towards yourself and, and with your baby. It is, it's that real kind of flow of compassion that, um, you know, I'm reawakening to every day and there's a new level of, of awareness and understanding around what it means to, um, allow myself to give compassion and care and love, um, and allow almost feels like the wrong word because there is this kind of natural emitting and, and abiding in compassion with my daughter. And, and I think this capacity for receiving compassion right? And kind of being able to kind of see the the looks that she gives me or the first kind of mommy that I get in the morning when I go to get her from her crib. And the self-compassion I have for myself on the days where I'm not sleeping or I haven't been able to get to, you know, everything I need to do for work or for the house or for each other, um, or where I'm willing to kind of receive the compassion from Dennis, who's kind of the the co-parent extraordinaire, particularly in in the context of these past six months, kind of sharing kind of the load together in this in this kind of parenting journey which has been so amazing there is this kind of real like daily reminder and I think it speaks to kind of daily practice um that Dennis was talking about of kind of just abiding in that awareness of it right and noticing kind of where kind of my attention is in a given moment um when I'm kind of spending time with her um, or we're playing or she's learning something new, kind of really kind of tuning into herself and and myself and our self in that moment and being able to kind of, kind of notice kind of the, the, all of the kind of wonderful sensations of kind of being, being with her or being able to care for kind of her. Um, So I think there is kind of a lot of that kind of awakening and re-understanding of, of the, the skills of kind of compassion in this moment and the actions uh, and things that evoke and the imagery and the melody and the, the song of kind of motherhood that has emerged that's been just kind of amazingly enlightening in its own way. And on the other side, like a real testament to kind of a willingness to sit with distress and difficulty and our capacity for sleeplessness is 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 no bound sometimes but that's i think there is this kind of other end of it that allows us to um to persist in the face of of those kinds of struggles and suffering because we love so deeply and because it matters so much um so there's been yeah a lot of a lot of new learning and and a lot of old remembering Right. Like I really I, I'm very fond of the translation of of the poly word for mindfulness as self remembering and kind of holding self with a lowercase s. Like there's this kind of remembering of what it means to be human, what it means to be connected, what it means to care for others. Um, and I, I think we use a lot of teaching examples around parenting because our capacity for compassion comes from our caregiving and care receiving repertoires before becoming a mom I could say them quite quickly and kind of as a teaching point but now they're kind of lived experiences and I catch myself stumbling or kind of tearing up sometimes or kind of feeling the the heart check moments of like what that experiential knowing really is like Mm -hmm. I love how you you bring up the receiving compassion component with children or if, if we have animals or we have loved ones of taking the time to receive and, and really experience compassion and gratitude, right? So thinking about the holidays and in the, you know, in Canada and the US, Thanksgiving, and 
what gratitude really can be is is in some ways receiving compassion and being grateful for those those moments and having taking the time to to be in them spending time in them We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. One of the things that I had my kids do over the past couple of days, besides learn about what the electoral college is and color in the map, was write a letter to our future president, whoever they may be, and what their what their wishes would be for them, and, and as well as some some suggestions for improvement. <laughs> and I, I'm curious if you were to uh, be able to be in a space with our administration, what would you suggest to help heal our country, heal divide? To focus on creating the causes and conditions in education and in media and in public discussion that deliberately um, train compassion, Mm -hmm. that cultivate that. You can have McDonald's and a sedentary lifestyle and you will reliably contribute to greater heart problems. You can have people smoke cigarettes and you can contribute to like greater lung cancer. You can have, you know, racist or anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim propaganda, right? Or anti-LGBTQ propaganda in many different places and many different points in history. And that motivates people to act out of hate. And we know from the research on compassion training and self-compassion training, as well as like, you know, centuries of witnessing history and different societies and contemplative movements. We know that when you reliably create the conditions and causes that cultivate greater compassion, that there's an individual and social transformation. It's like not a mystery. It actually happens. It actually Mm -hmm. literally, really, really happens. And we have social conditions which have created greater polarization, greater hostility, greater competition, and greater cruelty. So, you know, if President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, you know, if and their administration, if they're going to move towards the values of empathy and inclusion that they've put forward so far, that that doesn't have to just be like a vague aspirational thing. It can be like you know, something that we actually train people in, just like we train people in like the alphabet or calisthenics or marksmanship. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a real thing. They're real action items that, yeah, we can kind of begin from kind of day one. I think in beginning with an ability to open up kind of a dialogue and open up kind of our capacity for listening and active listening with one another, right? In terms of inclusion, in terms of action, in terms of healing, um, and repairing, I think, some of the, the 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 divisions that have have really gotten so deep, and I think we need to kind of acknowledge them and acknowledge everybody's kind of fears in the context of those divisions, um, and allowing kind of a safe space where we can have kind of the difficult conversations. And I think that Dennis kind of speaks to this idea 
of how do we create the conditions where our capacity for compassion as, as a population, as a community, as a government can arise. And I think that we, we have kind of the, the science behind compassion to be able to facilitate that kind of, that kind of context where it's going to increase the likelihood where we all have the ability to act from a place of compassion and care and an interest of all of our well-being. Yeah, so I'm hearing starting with deep listening and and then training the mind in in orienting towards compassion and and maybe training at the level when when they're little. <laughs> you know, training and that you know having that integrated into our education system and this was reflecting as as we were thinking about world leaders the the meeting many years ago in the 60s Tignat Han who met with Martin Luther King in New York. So Tignaha came to New York. He was, I think he was in exile already then. And they, they had 45 minutes together. And I always wonder what happened inside those doors. But when they came out of that meeting, uh, Martin Luther King came out against the Vietnam War. And probably what happened in there was a whole lot of deep listening, <laughs> a whole lot of compassion. And then from there, we can act in really profound, big ways, or we can act in, in smaller ways within our own little families, maybe just being with our child when they uh, wake up from their nap, which your child is doing such a good job of right now. <laughs> what a long napper she is. Good job. Dennis and Laura, you've done such a beautiful job of looking at how we can take ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and really marry it with the compassion practices from CFT. Can you talk a little bit about why you've uh, woven those two uh, approaches together and, and why they're such a beautiful fit. Well, I think they're lenses. And Laura, I'd love to get your take on this too. Like they're, they're, they're different process models that emerge from different scientific traditions that are both, that both of them are influenced by contemplative practice. You know, Steve Hayes and other, and Kirk and, and Kelly, you know, to some extent were influenced by contemplative tradition. I know Steve, uh, really was. We've talked a lot about that together. And, uh, you know, sort of Samkhya uh, and yogic philosophy and meditation. And Zen. that was a big influence as well as radical behaviorism on Steve's early thinking. And then he comes out of the behavior analytic tradition and cognitive behavioral to some extent tradition. So there's like a basic science plus contemplative wisdom take on human functioning and a return to the science from the, uh, the basic science from the outcome data emphasis of the 80s and 90s in, in mainstream CBT, right? Now, Paul Gilbert and then the compassion-focused therapy people, those are folks who came uh, a little bit more out of things like the Tibetan Vajrayana meditation uh, world and imagery in that world and even like method acting plus uh, therapy from the human potential movement and sort of like how do you evoke and you know certain kinds of inner potentials so you feel them and then the basic science of affective neuroscience and evolution so there's also a return to basic science and a return to contemplative wisdom but in a different kind of domain of science so and, and they both have a process model one is more uh, evolutionary functional ana analysis of emotion which is the cft thing and the other is more uh, behavior analytic functional analysis of language and cognition, right? Verbal behavior. But you put them together and they're both like really erudite, well-developed lenses on 
motivational, emotional functioning with a compatible language. So it makes sense that you can, you know, derive connections. Also, we're clinicians, you know, we're not really academics. We, we have a, you know, two person university department in the house with like, you know, a dog and a baby, but listening, <laughs> that's our entire uh, faculty and student body. But like, we're not so much a part of the academic establishment. And what that means is we're, um, we're running studies with an N of one, you know, all the time, like, and you learn what, what is, seems to be working, what seems to not. And you always have to be careful about, you know, your subjective experience and anecdotal evidence. But on the other hand, you know, clinical experience can inform research and theory and treatment development. Paul Gilbert often says that CFT was developed with and for his clients, like with and for them. Like that they, And if you watch some of the videos he uses as teaching tools with some of his earliest CFT clients, they are coming up with some of the ideas that we use now just as much as Paul is. And I, I think the same thing happens with us. Right. Oh, absolutely. I think that, that a lot of this emerged from, um, and I think it was, you know, about 10 years ago where that we really started having these kind of really passionate conversations about how to bring CFT and ACT together. I mean, I think I'd like to say that, that CFT likes to share its toys and play well with other therapies. And I think that's kind mm-hmm. of quite true. It's bringing a compassion focus to evidence-based, especially, I think, process-based therapies. And that's why I think there is was a natural fit early on. And it was about kind of 10 years ago and Dennis was kind of speaking um, at a kind of Buddhist uh, temple and doing some trainings with, with some folks. And he was talking about ACT in kind of layman's terms. And I had been kind of really immersed at the time in bringing CFT into the room. I'd been doing ACT therapy and working with ACT processes with my clients, but really immersing myself in mastering CFT at that time. And it kind of, it felt like somebody kind of hit me over the head. Like, of course, these things map onto each other. The way we conceptualize psychological flexibility and the way we conceptualize the processes involved in the compassionate mind, they fit together so well. And I noticed looking over kind of training tapes, um, how the language kind of interplayed with each other and how the focus in the room interplayed and how the more kind of we brought in the compassionate language into kind of the act processes of our clients, it felt like something softened in the room. And I would agree with you, Dennis. I think a lot of kind of what we notice and how treatment develops is from the wisdom of the individuals that we serve, right? Like that, that is kind of what sparks, I think, inspiration in so many ways. So I think there was this, this natural fit there um, and this kind of um, pulling out of kind of what was embedded in both of these treatments. I think they bring out the best in each other in many ways. One of the things that you taught, Dennis, at the opening of that retreat that we were on a few years back was you opened it with a, why are you here? You asked us that, and then you asked us it again. And then I think you asked it again, three or four times to actually get to the root of why we were really there at the retreat together. And I'm curious for the two of you, why are you really here on this podcast and spending your Saturday with us on Psychologists Off the Clock? I think that's uh, it's a question to sit with, you know, how much, how much do I know? I, I know what my aim for being here is, you know. So that way of answering why is that 
to the extent that I am able to make a decision and I'm not just determined by the flow of, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, genetics and environment and learning history that determines most of my actions. Like the, 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 the part that is like something like will that's here is, is a desire to uh, help people to wake up, help myself to wake up, to share a space where we're awakening to who we really are uh, as connected, uh, you know, conscious oneness in a way, you know, and that's why I became a shrink. And that's why like, I'm so like rejoicing in the fact that the field moved towards, uh, mindfulness, acceptance, compassion, and more dharmic modes of like thing thinking. I mean, I had faculty tell me like, you seem like a hippie. You seem like a drug dealer because I meditated, you know, like you seem like a drug, like, I don't know, like that doesn't seem very correlated to me. That seems orthogonal, but anyway, like, you know, just because, you know, you talked about Buddhism. So like, you know, and may they be well, wherever they are, I hope they're happy, you know, but the truth is like, that's, that's the game to me. The game mm. is awakening and loving and sharing that space together. So that's, you know, this seemed like a good idea. You, you seem really great. Everybody around this podcast seems really great and caring and loving and supportive and wanting to share a little light. So that's a good thing to be a part of. I think that's, that's my, my thing. As we uh, often do, we kind of sit and, in a similar circle and I think my my aim I think it very much kind of rests in, in what Dennis is saying and, and this capacity to um, talk about compassion with y'all is uh, so important to me um, and any opportunity to sit and talk about compassion I think <laughs> we'll, we will take I think you know we we're pretty kind of geeked out about this stuff and I love kind of the the content and context of your 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 guys's podcast is so amazing and I've always enjoyed listening to it. So it's kind of an honor um, and a pleasure to be here talking to you about this, this amazing kind of topic and the idea of transformation, uh, the idea of more people bringing compassion into their work, into their lives, into their experience means a lot. I think to me, to both of us, we like to say that compassion is your birthright. It's all of our birthright. You know, as a human being on this planet, you are worthy of compassion, receiving and giving compassion. And now, as much as any other time in our lifetime, is a good time to remember that, to remember our capacity for compassion for each other. And I think is how we're going to continue, continue to evolve and to better address our capacity as humans for suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. I just want to riff on that for a minute. Yeah, okay. please. Like, so... I just am noticing how baked into our language and our, our like our, our human ideas about separateness, the way we could answer the question is, mm-hmm. you know, although I think we're answering it as well as we can. And like, we're trying to emphasize, but like when, when you first asked me the question, I, 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 I answered about like, I, but the truth is the why, and it has, has more to do with you. Like you asked us, you know, like that's why we're really, here it's just because you asked and it made sense and it's like it's not even just because of you it's because of us it's because of the people here in this room and our community and all the folks who came before us and and in a weird way maybe even all the folks who come after us like because we're a part of the flow of 
people who want to become more compassionately awake for one another. So, you know, in a way, you're the, you're the we, you are the reason, we are the reason together that we're here. That's the, but the, but the thing asks for it, you know, like we, we talk that way, all of us, all the time we need to, or nothing would get done. Like, you know, you is a restaurant and the waiter comes up and says, what would I like for dinner? You're not going to get very far. They's like, what would you like for dinner? Mm-hmm. You know? So we need to acknowledge that level. But the real answer and the why I think has got a little, a little to do with just us. Well, really. yeah, embedded in the answer, right? And the imbe- I think that in the work is this kind of surrounded of this, is surrounded by this awareness of the weeness, the interconnectedness of all of us, the embodied interconnectedness that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. and this understanding um, that we're yeah we're playing the game, we're playing the self game, we're playing the I you me sure. Yeah, because that's that's what's workable. But we can hold that lightly. We can have kind of flexibility around that and an understanding of of a greater sense of of existence and of what it what it all means and what what we're all doing this for. Right. That that there is no you. There is no me. There is only a we if we're going to survive and get through. Yeah. And I I think I asked you because I wanted to be part of that. Yeah, I felt that when I first when I first met you uh, from a distance, you know, uh, there's something magical here in this in this room that I was in with you, but but magical in a in a in a bigger way. If I want to be part of it, I feel like there's an offering here, not only for myself, for my clients, but me as a parent, me as a partner, and me as just a a human on this planet, and it, it, through compassion. So I thank you for for spending your morning or spending spending your time to not only this in this moment but a but a lifetime of of your own personal work your work as a couple as a family your work in uh, writing many different books and offerings everything from the super heady uh, act practitioner's guide to the science of compassion if you want to if you are one of those nerds that is uh, in lockdown and wanting to nerd out on how to, how these models fit together go for it. And you'll get everything from the Hexaflex with Kristen Neff's work to how CFT all, it all makes sense. And then if you want the day to day, like, okay, I just need to open something up. I'm right now I'm having difficult thoughts. And how do I respond to that? How do I be nicer to myself? Laura, your book on how to be nice to yourself is beautiful to look at, and it's beautiful to experience. So I really appreciate you taking these complex Heady, heady, heady stuff, and making it accessible for us just to use in our daily lives or with our clients. Many blessings to the two of you. I hope that uh, we continue to collaborate in the future and and be part of this bigger movement towards compassion, collaboration, kindness, love, whatever you want to call it. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.